Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your questions, your comments, your concerns, and in this case, your hot takes about tennis and other stuff. About 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab, over 50 of you commented, and full disclosure, this is the second time I'll be answering your comments because um, basically I did this entire thing and I hit the stop record button. I've been using this software for three years. I've never had an issue and something happened and I lost it. Three years, that has never happened. I, I There is nothing worse than doing things twice, I got to say. Um, but the good news is that I know exactly how I'm going to answer each question because I've already done this. A couple of housekeeping things. Before we begin, the next episode of three will drop later on tonight. So look out for that. Uh, it won't be posted on this channel. Remember, you got to uh, check that out on three, a tennis show. And also Monday Match Analysis, I'll give you a little teaser. It's unique. It's different. I think you're going to be, <laughs> I think you're going to like it. And I'll be uh, back to analyzing a tennis match. It's a tennis match that none of you have ever seen before because it hasn't been played yet. That's all I'm going to say. Let us begin now with the mailbag. The first comment comes from Nixon021. Hey Gil, this is an old question you didn't get to answer, but you said I should post it again. What if hypothetically, with all the measures at the US Open, some player gets a positive test for the virus just before a semifinal match or even final? If we take into account the current rule is even more strict, if someone from the player's team has it, then the player himself is disqualified, then this scenario is definitely possible. This is a tough one. This is a bite the bullet situation to me. I don't think there's a good solution here. Some people might suggest taking the player from the previous round and having them advance. So if you have the final and one of the competitors test positive for COVID-19 or someone on his team does, they have to withdraw. Well, why don't we just take the player who lost in the semifinal and have them play the final? I don't really think that's possible. I don't think you can do that. Now, I've heard that suggested in the pre-COVID era, and I've heard people say that that should be the course of action when a player withdraws before a match, but I've never been in that camp. I've always been against that. A couple reasons. One, you can't expect a player to stay at the site after losing. A lot of players are on the first flight back home or wherever wherever their next tournament is. Um, especially at a major, there's a day in between. You can't accept you can't expect players to hang around and wait. They're going to be long gone um, a lot of the time. The next two problems are prize money and rankings points. Because if I win two matches, if I win my first round match and then I win my second round match, well, now I've earned my third round prize money and my third round rankings points. But if I get hurt in training and I need to pull out of my third round match, if you put the player I just beat in the third round, are you going to pay him third round prize money? Are you giving him third round uh, rankings points? There, I don't know how you handle that. So the answer to this question, what do you do if a player has to withdraw deep in the tournament because of COVID? I don't see any course of action that 
make sense beyond canceling the match and taking the blow. I don't think there's a good solution here. Second part of this comment is thinking of active players. If we take into account the results and titles, is Djokovic the best player on clay after Nadal? If yes, why? If not, why not? And who is? Right now, I can't say that definitively he's better than Dominic Team. Team has beaten him three out of the last four times they've played on clay. Last year, Djokovic got him in Madrid, but Team got him in the best of five at Roland Garros. Kind of a wacky match, I would say. None of. Neither of them really both played their best level at the same time, perhaps until the fifth set, and Dominic took it 7-5 in the fifth. The previous matches, the previous two matches before then, Djokovic was uh, not really at his best. One was at Roland Garros in in 2017. The other one was in Monte Carlo 2018. Uh, Djokovic not in form really in either of those matches, but... I will say the the power advantage for team is pretty significant when these two play on clay. And the return of serve, Dominic's kind of weak link, the, the part of Dominic's game that can be taken advantage of at the present is not so vulnerable on clay. So I don't think you can say Djokovic over team on clay right now definitively. All right, Ashwin has a hot take. Oh yeah, did I did I forget this? I didn't say this. Okay, I gave you guys a bit of a prompt. I said, I want your favorite tennis hot take. So some of these comments are going to be normal. Some of them are going to be hot takes. Hot take from Ashwin. Peak Stan Wawrinka could beat anyone on tour and has the highest level in recent history, French Open 2015, including the big three. Also, what adjustments did Stan make to his game to get to the 2014 through 2016 level compared to the no-name he was before? I wouldn't say he was a no-name, just wasn't a top tenner. Peak Stan Wawrinka could beat anyone on tour. Highest level in recent history. Here's the thing. Now, I will get you on a technicality here. Because I think Peak Roger beats Peak Stan every day of the week. Federer has the serve volley that he can mix in, which bothers Stan's block return. The first forehand is so good. So Federer's really good at just eating up the Vavrinka return right away. Uh, he can force Vavrinka into the forecourt where he's not uncomfortable, use the low forehand or the short chip. Um, he can net rush very effectively when Vavrinka lets his court position um become too defensive or retreated. So there's a million things Federer does to take away Vavrinka's uh, momentum, to make him uncomfortable. Players who do give Vavrinka um, rhythm, like Djokovic, can, can run into a problem. We've seen that because Vavrinka has this unbelievable crippling power and ruthless aggression from the back of the court. So I I see that hot take. I like the hot take, but I get you on a technicality, which is Roger. Hot take without his injuries, Del Potro's career would be better than the career of Murray and Vavrinka. I'll tell you why I like that take and I'll tell you why I don't. I like the take because... 
Delpo not only had incredible tools and, and great weapons, especially the forehand, but he had the mental. He had unbelievable mental strength. I always liked him to to dig deep in a big match and not back down and, and play his best tennis. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. When the chips are down, do you play your best tennis? And I believe Del Potro did, and I love that. He had that. Murray and Vavrinka had that as well. Vavrinka especially later. Oh, you know what? I forgot to answer the second part of the Stan hot take. Second part of the Stan hot take is belief. I think if you watch Vavrinka play top five players early in his career, he just didn't have a lot of confidence. He didn't play within himself. When things started going against him, he kind of disengaged from the match. He clearly did not have the confidence necessary to take those guys out. And then something clicked. He decided that he was good enough. He decided he belonged on the court with the top players. So I think a lot of it was mental. The technical side is the return of serve where he started blocking every serve. It it allowed him to put much more returns in play. It simplified his return mindset. And also, he's he's just quite good with the block return. He puts it deep in the court. He's really consistent with it. So that's why Stan was able to reach a, a much higher level than he did pre-28 years old. Because Stan was a late bloomer. Um, okay, back to Del Potro. I love the mental. From a mental standpoint, that's why I agree with the take. If Delpo didn't have any injuries, I think he would have three slams or more. I agree. Now, here's why I'm not sure he would have been a transcendent champion. Here's why I'm not sure Del Potro would have uh, been a consistent major title champion. I haven't seen his prototype really succeed at the highest level consistently. Or... uh, I don't like the way I phrase that. I haven't seen his prototype consistently win major titles. I'll explain what I mean. Federer, he plays a little bit like Sampras, right? Big serve, big forehand, great uh, dexterity at the net. Djokovic plays a little bit like Agassi with better defense. We've seen it. Nadal... He's got the topspin, the movement, the consistency, a little bit like Bjorn Bork. Maybe Vilas as well. All of these players, right, like that's a prototype that we've seen work. We've seen it happen. But Del Potro's prototype, I'm not sure we've seen that consistently work. Perhaps, I mean, here's who I think of. I think of Marit Safin. I think of Tomas Burdich. I think of Robin Soderling. All players who were who were great, but they were always really the contenders, and they weren't really the champions. So that's why I don't that's that's where I'm at with Del Potro. I would say uh he would have. I, I like the hot take. I like it because I do think that he would at least equal them, maybe more, uh, because uh v- Murray and Vavrinka have the three major titles. Again, my voice is a little tired. I've been talking for so long because this is take two. Um, All right, next one, I can't pronounce the name, but there's three questions in here. 
Um, first one, do you think that Nadal's decrease in speed and quickness makes it almost an impossible task to beat Djokovic on hard courts or even at Roland Garros this year? I feel like because Nadal is getting slower and slower, Djokovic might have a lifetime chance to beat him, especially with improved serve and forehand. I still don't believe this. And I know it's been since uh, U.S. Open. So first, let me say this. Nadal hasn't won a set off of Djokovic since the 2013, uh, on hardcourt, since the 2013 U.S. Open final. It's alarming. Again, I, Djokovic isn't a good matchup for Nadal, especially on hardcourts. It's just the X's and O's don't work. We've discussed this. Both cross courts are problematic for Rafa. So yeah, it's been a while. But I don't think it's over for Nadal against Djokovic on hard courts. I still think, and I'll throw grass in there, I still think he he does have the biggest weapon on the court when it's firing, which is the forehand. I also think that there's just more that he can possibly bring out of his serve. And when those two things, if those two things click, he's being aggressive, offensive, and going down the line often with the forehand, and he's serving big, he's bothering, I shouldn't say serving big, and he's bothering Djokovic's return with the serve. He had his best serve year of his career in 2019. He was on pace to do it again in 2020. Or he is on pace. It's weird. I don't know to be past tense or present tense when I'm talking about this year's tennis season. But when when the tour was uh, in action, Nadal was serving the best of his career. If he continues to make those improvements and the forehand clicks against Djokovic, I do think he still might have enough. Now, the bigger question is less about his forehand and more about his serve. Will he ever serve well enough to bother Djokovic's return? That's a real question. And I tend to think maybe it can be done, but I understand. I understand if you think, no, it can't be done. So we'll see. Second one, um, I I do believe that having Dominic team on either side of the draw at Roland Garros makes it much more difficult to get through both him and Nadal slash Djokovic. He might even win it all this year. I agree. Nothing to say. I, I don't have anything to say to that, but I agree. In your opinion, has team underachieved until this point in his career, or was it to be expected for things to turn out the way he, they did? I don't think it's fair to call a late bloomer an underachiever. Everyone kind of, I don't think you can expect everyone to develop quickly. That's like saying, it's like saying Djokovic underachieved from 2000, let's say from 2006 to 2011. I don't think that's fair. Djokovic didn't really round into the player he would become until a little bit later. And Nadal was just unnaturally fast unnaturally fast. Federer was a little bit in, in the middle, right? Um, but I don't think as long as you develop, as long as you clog your holes and team has, his serve is now more versatile. His backhand is more consistent. He can defend on it. His shot selection is better. He has a slice now. He's His volley is improved. Um, as long as you are getting better, I don't think you can be called an underachiever. But a late bloomer, yes. Hot take from Ali Patton. Nick Kyrgios' game is overrated. I think someone like Chorich has more talent than Kyrgios. 
People think hitting a drop shot and doing tweeners makes a player more talented than they actually are. His return is very weak off both wings and can be exposed easily. Not again, Nothing against the guy, uh, just his overall game. So, I agree with the technical critique of Kyrgios. I agree that his return is weak. By the way, the technique isn't good on, that, on those shots. Um, and I also do agree that flashy players can develop a reputation for being more talented than they are. But... I believe the only way you can say that Nick Kyrgios is an overrated talent is if you don't see serving as part of the package of talent, which I, I happen to. Because inch for inch, pound for pound, Nick Kyrgios is the best server in the ATP Tour. You can look at Isner, you can look at Opelka, you can look at Ivo Karlovic. Those are all towers. Inch for inch, Nick Kyrgios has the best serve on Tour. It is hard to read. He can slice it. He can bomb it flat. He can kick it up high. He can go anywhere with it. It's all coming from the same toss. It's a fluid, effortless motion. He has one of the most beautiful serves on tour. And that's got to be packaged in there. He's also got a good forehand and a consistent backhand. Um, I, I think Kyrgios is, is very talented. And I tend to separate athleticism and talent. I think that they're kind of two separate things. And and Borna Chorich is a better athlete than Nick Kyrgios. And he works harder on his fitness. He, he's just a more fit player. But when it comes to racket talent, I do believe that Kyrgios is, uh, is more talent than Chorich. Although, there's also some truth to your hot take. Flashy players can be overrated, for sure. I think Nadal falls victim to that, right? Nadal a little bit less flashier than Federer, so we assume that he's you know not as talented. But if you look at Nadal's hands and his shot making, it's right there, right? I think I would say I would say that's true for Nadal and Djokovic. You know, Federer's got a little more flair, so we equate that to talent, which isn't really always fair. Uh, next comment is from Yorisco, who knows what that means. Hopefully I didn't curse in another language. Um, what is your opinion on the reason why the best tennis players are from Europe for the last two decades or so? Is it a different on-court mindset slash style? Is it the level of coaching slash facilities? Is it the weather circumstances? Is it a difference in approach to life itself, which possibly uh, affects how uh, how committed players are to tennis or is it just a coincidence? Thanks in advance. Great question. Ooh, this is one that I'm just going to say right off the bat. Um, I am going to do my best to answer it, but I think there are definitely people out there who can answer it a lot better than me. But I'm going to try my best. First, I'll go towards your uh, suggestions. Different on-court mindset slash style. Yes, I agree that exists. And sometimes I question... Um, I question the fact that most North American players, Canada, United States, at least not South America, uh, but Canada, United States mainly grow up on hard courts. And I wonder if stylistically, uh, they would be, they would develop more of a modern game if they grew up on clay courts instead, 
where you have to be a little bit more patient. You got to work the point more. Uh, hitting big requires a little bit more racket speed. Got to generate more pace. Need more footwork. Can't rely on the serve as much. All of these things. True about clay court tennis. And I often wonder if American tennis would be better if we developed our players on red clay. Level of coaching slash facilities. I don't think so. Weather. I don't think so because there's plenty of... I mean, maybe that's a challenge. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, difference in approach to life itself. Now, this one I kind of like because I do think that there's something to be said for the best athletes. Two things, two parts of this. One, are the best athletes playing tennis? You're a great athlete. You get to choose, right? And And by the way, great athletes are great athletes. They are, they are born that way, um, and what sport they commit to, what sport they choose to play, that's big, and I think that's, that's a factor. Perhaps U.S. and Canada lags behind there. But here's one. What sports do we cross-train? In North America, we might be playing baseball. We might be playing... Football, maybe basketball, maybe hockey, right? In Europe, they're playing soccer mostly. That is a way better cross-training. Way better cross-training. Soccer, you learn how to move your feet. Soccer, you learn footwork. That's half the battle in tennis. So I, I also think that might be a factor. What sport are we cross-training in? And... uh when it comes to tennis, I don't think that the North American sports are great. I don't think they're very good for cross-training. So that could be a factor. All right, let's see. Hot take. Team is and will continue for the next five, six years to be a more and a better, more consistent version of Stan Wawrinka. I've actually, I share this take. I agree. I think that team is a better athlete. I think he has a better serve. Boom, boom. Uh, which tournament do you usually think yields the best tennis? That also comes from Sachin. I would say Australia because everyone's healthy. The field is full. I think they're fresh. I don't think they're rusty. I do not. Uh, here's a question. Let's see. Oh, here's one with 14 likes. Got to answer this one. Hi, Gil. Love from India. Thank you. This comes from Naman. Who do you think is a better grass court player, Rafa or Murray? Andy's skill set suits grass better with flatter strokes, better serve, back return, and backhand. But Rafa is mentally superior and leads 3-0 in head-to-head. -head. Well, I think your assessment is pretty good there. I don't have a grass court match between them off the top of my head, so I can't, I can't point to that, unfortunately. But Rafa being the better player, the head-to-head -head doesn't shock me. But I, I mostly, uh, I agree with your assessment there. My take, Rafa's adjustment to his hardcourt game is giving him better and consistent results on one hand, but makes him more vulnerable to Roger and Novak on a hardcourt. It might be due to his return position, which opens up angles for great spot servers like them as Rafa's court position is exploited, or it might be mental. Would love to hear your thoughts. Well... Return position. Return position I don't think is too big a too big an issue because uh I think that Nadal now understands that he must move back 
and that is the best return position for him. Because when, when he moves up, he's simply not comfortable. It just doesn't work. There were a couple years where Uncle Tony was trying to force it, trying to force him up there, and it wasn't working. So I'm glad that he stopped doing... I, I think it's good for Nadal that he stopped doing that. Um, mental, yeah, I think sometimes I think Nadal has reverted back to his more passive style of play against Federer or Djokovic. There are instances in which I think that has happened, but for the most part... I don't feel it's, I feel it's a lot more simple, which is that Djokovic and Federer reach a level where they're able to exploit Nadal's movement in a way that other less skilled players simply don't have the ability or talent to do. If you play a better player, they're going to move you more. At all levels of the sport, that's true. So I think it's who has the ability to exploit Nadal's, um, defense and movement where maybe before when they played um they they couldn't attack that part of Nadal's game and it's not attacking it I shouldn't put it like that because whenever you play anyone you're trying to hit strong shots and make them play defense and move them around it's just Nadal when he is um when he is being dictated instead of doing the dictating uh he is not as strong as he once was when he is being pushed around and Nadal, uh, or excuse me, Djokovic and Federer are simply able to put him on the defensive more because they're better players. All right. Let's get to this one with nine likes. Hot take. As far as behavior goes, Murray and Nadal are better role model, better role models than Djokovic or Federer. FYI, I am a fan of all four players. Nadal has had to demonstrate more resilience to build a career arguably as good as Federer's. He takes max responsibility for form and fitness, plays with an unrivaled commitment and resilience, and is humble. Murray is also humble and has much intellect and insight. He's a human being who happens to be incredible at tennis, doesn't talk like a product, and will exchange marketability for sincerity while being very respectful, both more relatable and grounded than Fed or Novak. Well, this, this is all about what you connect to. This is a personal thing. And that's true with all sports fandom. Um, I'll keep it to tennis. I was tempted to make analogies to other sports, but I'll keep it to tennis. Look, some people are attracted to a villain. They want a villain. They like a villain. They're curious fans. Just what some people like. Um... Now, this person, Thomas here, who made the comment, I think what, what Thomas wants is down-to-earth, common man, regular person. That's what Thomas likes. That's what he believes to be the his ideal uh, you know, athlete, ideal role model. Others might be more attracted to the underdog. Those people are probably Novak Djokovic supporters. He's the underdog from his upbringing— to the fact that he was the third most popular among the big three. Um, certainly, I would say the, the metrics back that up. They like the underdog. Some people like that, right? Some people like the, I would say, the aura of perfection. The kind of, the never, yeah, I would say just kind of the very polished, I think is a good word. They like Roger Federer. 
So it's all just what do you look for? What do you like in your athletes? And then go across sports. Like if you like tennis and you like soccer, think about who you support in both sports. They probably have similar kind of molds and they fit into these things. So I, I can't agree with your hot take. Cannot. Because I do believe that it's all about um, who, who you personally connect with. All right. Let's see. Going by likes. The next comment is from Gold Wolf. Two fun questions that you can't skip. One, thoughts on Fed's new shoes. Did you get a pair? No, I heard they're very expensive, but uh, Fedder has a new pair of white style trainers called the Roger, if you hadn't heard. I do like them. I think they look tremendous. I think very, very cool. But I don't normally go above eh, 130 on shoes, and I believe that'll cost me about 200 for Roger's shoe. I don't, I don't go up there. Above my price range. But I do, I do like them. Uh, second, second question, I'm going to change the wording to make it less offensive. How many Djokovic fans got angry at you for your take on Borna Cioric, a.k.a. Baby Djokovic? I don't think people were so upset about me. I don't think it was about um, defending Chorich. I think it was the fact that, well, look, here's the thing. Nick is polarizing. A lot of people don't like Nick Kyrgios. A lot of people like him, but... Um, I don't blame people for not liking him, like whatsoever. If you don't, if you don't like Nick Kyrgios, yeah, I I get it. Like again, he's a villain for a reason. He's done things to earn him that. Um, and I was defending Nick Kyrgios. I just happened to be on this side, on on his side on this particular issue. So yeah, I I heard it. I, it wasn't the most popular take. I've uh, I've ever had people people disagreed with me. And by the way, people brought up some valid points. Uh, I do believe that Nick Kyrgios is is petty, um, and that he kind of uses any excuse to take a dig on the players he doesn't like. But I've been consistent on this. I've been very consistent on this. I don't need players to play nice. I don't need them to get along. I think it's nice that some players do. I, you know, it's not that I want everyone to hate each other, but if if some players trash talk each other, I have no problem with that. This is sports. This is competitive. We don't need everyone to get along. There's no need for that. It, it's not necessary. So when when Kyrgios takes a shot at other players. I don't mind that. I think that's fun. And I'm I'm consistent about that. It, across all sports and and it's okay in other sports more so than tennis. Tennis breeds this culture of of etiquette, but I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't mind a little trash talk. I I think that's good. I think that's all fine. So, that's where I stand on on uh, on Nick, but yes, it was an unpopular take, and um, he is petty. He is petty, and he there is. It's not a hundred percent hypocrisy, but he did uh, post a photo on on Instagram where he wasn't socially distancing with with his friend. Um, it's not clubbing. The cases are extraordinarily low where he's at, but so there, but there's still a little bit of hypocrisy there. There's a little bit of hypocrisy in the fact that he seemed uh, he didn't say anything about Atlanta. I think it's a bit apples to oranges. There's nuance here. There's gray. It's not black and white. 
Adria Tour wasn't the same as Atlanta, but he didn't have anything to say about that. A lot of people think, oh, that's because his friends were involved. That's because it was TFO and not Djokovic. So all fair. I, I get it. It's interesting. Wasn't expecting everyone to agree with me, and uh, not everyone did. All right. Unfortunately, I am on a time constraint. If uh, if I liked your comment and I didn't get to it, I will let you know by uh, replying to you in the community tab so you can comment it again on the next mailbag in two weeks. Until then, hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.